0: Well, welcome everyone to uh, our afternoon session, uh, or first afternoon session. I am uh, Pierre Verdier from uh, UVA Law School, for those of who, you who don't uh, know me. Uh, and we have a uh, group of uh, really a scintillating group this afternoon to tell us about uh, the role of international law in the making of the uh, fourth restatement. Uh, first, Ed Swain, uh, as you, uh, Bill Dodge, and uh, Bakhtiar Tuzmu Karmadov, uh, I am told that uh, some introductions have already been made this morning, so uh, no further introductions are needed, and uh, we're ready to uh, go ahead. So we'll start with uh, with Ed.
1: Thank you very much, Pierre, um, and uh, thank you, obviously, to the uh, University of Virginia for uh, hosting this, uh, and also um, to uh, Paul for providing leadership in this and in our uh, Restatement project uh, in general. Um, so I want to try to, um, I guess, rehash the discussion paper to a certain extent, but also expand it in light of the, uh, the panel and its uh, project. Um, the paper is, you know, uh, let's be frank, kind of a, a boring little methodological piece more than it is anything that provides much um, uh, substantive uh, insight. But the question is ultimately about the kinds of materials with which um, the Restatement Fourth uh, has and should be wrestling, um, and uh, a comparison between it and the approach to uh, international law, which is obviously something of keen attention to the Restatement Fourth, as as it was to the Restatement Third. So the Restatement Third, as some of the other papers, um, both in this panel and other papers, um, discuss, um, you know, was Notable for its enthusiastic embrace uh, relative to the prior statement of um, international law, um, and its its approach to that was perhaps something like the enthusiasm, say, of a convert. Uh, it uh, it found it uh, quite enthusiastically uh, and uh, happily uh, most of the places it uh, chose to look, um, and it, um, as the discussion draft uh, noted, you know, in principle. It, la- it um, embraced uh, a traditional view of international law in terms of, of sources and evidence. Um, it considered the typical things one would look at in those regards um, and uh, focused on mainly on international agreements and customary international law. And conventionally, um, at least, it, it talked. It said the right things about um, how um, that was to be found uh, and um, and uh, uh, articulated in turn by the Restatement itself. Um, it was not um, completely successful um, despite its attempts to um, eschew a US focused view. It um, ended up with um, some distinctive views that were based in part upon um, its uh, approach to state practice, which ended up being a very um, US focused uh, kind of um, a state practice. Um, and In a few areas uh, where it wasn't so inclined, Um, it ran into some difficulties in dealing with um, one of the parties with which restatements in this field tend to deal with, which is the U.S. government, uh, and in particular, the State Department. And so there were um, interesting exchanges on topics such as expropriation, uh, for example, uh, as well as the the reasonableness uh, topic, the uh, reasonableness in prescriptive uh, jurisdiction. Um, And so this suggested that there was, in fact, sort of a us focused view or, or a different approach in practice that one might have um, to um, international law. Um, and there's nothing quite like that in the restatement um, forth up to this point. Um, there is use of international law quite heavily in some areas. Um, but there wasn't an attempt yet to um, define uh, what international law is or the kind of international law with which The Restatement Fourth should really be grappling. It more or less took um, the field uh, as a given and embarked on it. And in the discussion paper, I explained that I think, you know, and I would say this, I suppose, that this was uh, a a considered view, and that trying to define the parameters of international law and um, the kind of proof that one might want of international law more generally would have been um, kind of a hazardous thing to do given that um, only parts of the restatement fourth have been uh, authorized and you don't want to bite off more than you uh, can chew or or hem in uh, future discussions with a full considered view of all the topics that you're going to be considering so somewhat Something similar might be going on in a in an area that's uh, of, of keener interest still um, to the reporters and to their statement fourth, and that is to do with the understanding of foreign relations law, which is um, partly international law and partly not. Uh, the statement third uh, define this um, field as at least for purposes of that restatement. Uh, as being international law as it applies to the United States, uh, and domestic law that has substantial significance for the foreign relations of the United States, or has other substantial international consequences. There's nothing exactly similar to that um, in um, their statement forth to this point. Um, there is a discussion of a brief narrative depiction of what um, foreign relations law, Uh, is drawn from in a non-exclusive kind of way in the introduction. Um, We did discuss um, a section um, that would be um, uh, set out um, a a different um, definition um, that was discussed among the reporters. Um, It was uh, finalized to some degree or another, but it's not been published and it hasn't been subject to Um, the the, uh, full process. And so the paper is trying to decide, well, what kind of indications do we have about how this is going to be understood or detected um, by the restatement? And more importantly, what do I think, just my personal views, of course, what do I think this maybe suggests about some uh, potential things we want to be careful about? Or um, in taking on new sections, what do we want to um, be wary of uh, either not doing it again, or more importantly, where do we think uh, potential problems might lie? Um, so, you know, putting aside the question of the substantive scope of what uh, foreign relations law is, um, the issue is um, more given some type of scope uh, of what it covers, um, what kind of thing, um, what kind of evidence, what kind of fact falls within that and what should we be uh, paying attention to um, uh, really in trying to decide. It's, it's like you're engaged in something like, um, this <laughs> actually this is a very unattractive metaphor, but it, it's like you're engaged in something like um, redistricting. Um, and the question is not um, so much um, where you choose to draw the lines in defining uh, the district, but it's more sort of like um, you know, who counts uh, as, a, as a voter? What constitutes proof of life <laughs> within, that, within, that, uh, within that district? Um, and so this naturally is the kind of question that international law has long wrestled with in terms of the distinction between um, sources um, and, and evidence. Um, and looking at the Restatement Fourth, we have some really easy pickings in terms of uh, what our uh, sources ought to be. In other words, it seems very clear that um, reporters uh, in dealing with future sections of the Restatement Fourth, as is the true uh, of the ones that we've talked about so far, want to be dealing with um, the US Constitution. They want to be dealing with federal statutes. They want to be dealing with not just treaties, but presumably other international agreements as well. Um, They want to be dealing with um, state law, um, including on a lot of important questions covered in um, the jurisdiction section. Um, They want to be dealing with um, case law because of the U.S. um, system of articulating uh, the common law method and also Supreme Court interpretation of the Constitution. want to deal with executive branch uh, rules and regulations. Um, But we do talk about other things uh, without really having a clear understanding of what counts um, as evidence of those things or what counts beyond the law that any lawyer would mention when it's not necessarily authoritative of the, uh, uh, as to the particular uh, issue uh, being considered. And so, if we were to talk about, you know, executive branch, say, emissions of some kind, in connection with um, a problem of international law, an international lawyer would um, look at them and say, um, well, does this um, comment, does this practice, does this thing that is being reported to me, does it relate to you know, an agreement or customary international law, or are we forced to relegate it to the bleachers with soft law and the like? They'd know they want to first do this kind of sorting function to what? With what do we associate um, this statement? And then they would um, think about whether it's the kind of evidence that counts, and they would have um, mm-hmm. readily available a set of tools um, that they apply um, erratically, of course, but. Um, Uh, for figuring out, well, um, is this part of a um, consistent um, treatment of this issue by this particular actor? Is that um, treatment by that actor um, consistent within um, that relevant state? Is it consistent, um, uh, is this state's behavior, if it's consistent internally, is it consistent with the behavior of yet other states? And they'd go forward and build this question. This is, I think, to this point, less clear. Um, in the field of foreign relations how exactly we should do that. We know that we say, as a matter of restatement um, uh, law concerning uh, uh, foreign relations, that um, you know, whether international law is established in the fashion I just described, doesn't exhaust what we talk about as relevant f- for foreign relations law. We are interested in things that are um, unique to the United States, and idiosyncratic uh, for the United States. But how we make the decisions as to what counts exactly um, remains a little uh, unclear. So some of the things clearly matter. Other stuff, um, such as what the executive branch um, uh, does, um, is less clear. It will matter, for example, whether it's purports to be interpretive of the Constitution, whether it purports to be interpretive of a statute or of a, of a treaty. Um, But there are other instances in which um, uh, what the executive branch or what some other actor within the US system is doing um, simply exemplifies uh, a tendency or establishes a position with respect um, to other law or other um, state practices um, that um, uh, might be relevant. Um, And as the discussion paper indicates, um, I think we find this to be true, and my examples to this point, uh, which have been a little opaque, I admit. mainly relate to the executive branch. Um, I think we may find as we go forward, we want to be careful about some of the tendencies that I think people within foreign relations generally and within um, their statement process uh, might, might have. One question I mentioned in the paper is we should be um, interested in um, what happens when we don't have evidence establishing a position or a commitment to um, say a proposition of customary international law or say with respect to a particular kind of treaty practice that we see exhibited elsewhere. What does it matter if, for example, we don't find examples where um, the United States has done things in that fashion, has exercised um, jurisdiction? In a way that other states have exercised? What significance do we attribute to um, the omission or the lack of evidence in that regard? Um, And I think if we, um, I think it matters, but how exactly it matters is a little bit difficult. um, uh, It was a little bit difficult for me to say, and I'm interested in input on that question. I'm also interested in the question about what it matters, uh, to what extent it matters that the United States, say, on a given issue has not manifested um, a final or most conclusive position that it might have. So what does it matter if if the United States government has indicated support for the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, for example? Um, To what extent does it matter, and and attested that um, large parts of it at least are customary international law, to what extent does it matter that it hasn't committed to that uh, and um, ratified um, that um, treaty? Um, To what extent does it matter if there is a practice common within the State Department that has not made its way into um, Circular 175? Um, To what extent does it matter if to uh, turn the tables a little bit, there is a consistent position that um, members of the um, legislative branch have exhibited that has not made its way into a binding statute. To what extent should we pay attention to that? Uh, that seems to be practice of the kind that would be reported maybe in um, the practice digest. But what extent should we try to take this into account uh, within um, the uh, restatement process? Um, And I think we have to be um, sensitive to this, in part because um, one of the things um, I think many of us saw in the restatement process is uh, it's much easier to get information and input from um, actors within the executive branch, uh, within the the Justice Department, within the State Department, than it is to extract the considered view of participants within um, the legislative branch. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why that might be so. That might be um, uh, simply a reflection of how uh, foreign relations law is generally generated within the world. And we might simply view the restatement process as simply a microcosm of how foreign relations law really works. But I think we have to be wary of accepting that easy answer. Um, and we have to see whether there's ways in which the restatement should form its view uh, within itself um, courts al- always remain free to reject this. Um, but uh, I think we have to be careful about how we cast our net uh, and um, how we decide uh, what significance we attribute um, to other materials like this. Just so want to stop there?
0: Thank you.
2: Bill? Great. Well, um, Ed began his paper by noting the description of sources of foreign relations law in the introduction. Um, to the restatement, and maybe I'll just read that. Uh, the foreign relations law of the United States is drawn from different sources, including the constitutional, the Constitution, congressional legislation, judicial decisions, actions of the executive, customary international law, international agreements, and state law. This restatement attempts to distinguish clearly among these different sources and to explain their interrelationships with respect to the particular topics covered here. It's really that last part that I focus on in my paper and my contribution tries to distinguish between international law and international comedy. And I also try in the paper to defend the Restatement Fourth's reliance on international comedy. Now because I have written an article on international comedy I fear that people will attribute this reliance to me. Um, I will state for the record that I do not deserve all of the credit or all of the blame for the mentions of international comedy in the document. Uh, As I recall, it was frequently Paul or Anthea who would send a draft that described something as international comedy. I did not object to the inclusion, but I did not always initiate the inclusion. So the Restatement Third actively avoided using the word comedy And I think there are two reasons for this. First, the Restatement Third wanted to restate international law. And doctrines based on international comedy are not doctrines of international law. Second, the reporters of the Third Restatement thought that comedy was the antithesis of legal obligation. I think the most famous example of emphasizing international law over international comedy is Section 403 of the Third Restatement, which was built on top of cases like Timberlane and Mannington Mills that viewed their limitations of extraterritoriality as examples of comedy. Section 403 took these cases and it fashioned a rule of customary international law, but in doing so, the Restatement III ignored its own tests of state practice and opinio juris. Almost the only state practice cited in support was that of the United States, and the U.S. cases had not acted out of a sense of legal obligation. I think another example of the same dynamic is jurisdiction to adjudicate, where the reporters essentially took the Supreme Court's due process jurisprudence circa 1986, and wrote it into section 421 and called it customary international law. Again, almost all the practice cited was US practice, and again, there was no discussion of opinio juris. I'm sure we'll talk about this tomorrow morning in connection with Austin's paper some more. Um, I have enormous respect for each of the reporters of the third restatement, but I do think they erred in two respects. First, I really firmly believe that they should have followed the Restatement Third's own test for customary international law requiring a general and consistent practice of states followed out of a sense of legal obligation when they were trying to restate rules of customary international law of jurisdiction. Second, I don't think that they were right that comedy is the antithesis of legal obligation. It is absolutely correct that rules of international comedy do not reflect international legal obligation, but they certainly can reflect domestic legal obligation and they can take the form of rules, not just the form of standards. The Restatement Fourth took a more cautious approach to restating customary international law and that correspondingly meant that it was more open to, rest- to restating domestic law. The Restatement Fourth's reporters also did not shy away from international comedy. To the contrary, we found it a useful tool for distinguishing rules that are part of domestic law and required by domestic law, but not required by international law. With respect to the extraterritorial application of US law, the Restatement 4th significantly rejects Section 403 as a rule of customary international law because it is not supported by state practice and opinio juris. To Ralph and Hannah's chagrin, it also rejects Section 403 as a rule of U.S. domestic law based on comedy. And that's because it also doesn't reflect the practice of the U.S. Supreme Court, even though some lower courts continue to follow something that looks like 403 in certain contexts. Instead, what the restatement fourth does in section 404 is restate the presumption against extraterritoriality, which is the principal tool the Supreme Court has used to answer questions of geographic scope for the last three decades. Section 405 then goes on to supplement the presumption with a principle of reasonableness in interpretation based on the Empagran case. This carves out a space for some of the lower court cases that have applied case-by-case balancing in certain contexts. And I think properly read and read together, 404 and 405 allow courts a good deal of flexibility to tailor the geographic scope of US law provision by provision. Indeed, section 404 tries to restate the presumption against extraterritoriality in the most flexible terms possible. But unlike section 403, old section 403, it generally does not allow US courts to make case-by-case determinations not to apply US law based on conflicts with foreign law. So if I had to characterize the basic difference on this point between the two restatements, the restatement fourth allows for provision by provision determinations of geographic scope. The Restatement Third called for case-by-case determinations of whether US law should apply, and I see those as fundamentally different. I think the rejection of case-by-case discretion is in fact most consistent with what the US Supreme Court has said and done over the last three decades. I also think that discretion, this case-by-case discretion is a discretion that is in some ways too easy to abuse. And I think this is a point that Tom Lee makes in his paper um, about the restatement Fourth, and I think accurately, that um, to some extent, at least on some issues, the reporters were being a little defensive, not wanting to give too much discretion or authority to um, judges. And I would add that this case-by-case discretion is a discretion that many federal judges don't seem to want at least those who served as advisors on this project and spoke to the question um, seem to be unanimous in not wanting to have to weigh all of these factors to figure out whether US law should apply. I won't go into the same level of detail about other comedy doctrines. Um, Suffice it to say that the Restatement Fourth also tends to view limits on jurisdiction to adjudicate, the act of state doctrine, foreign state compulsion, and the recognition of foreign judgments as doctrines of international comedy. Now, I also view much of foreign sovereign immunity as international comedy. Um, Cue Dave Stewart to interject and uh, correct me. Um, I certainly recognize that there's a core of international law here um, that is supported by state practice and opinion juris, and therefore required by customary international law, but I think much of what states do in this area goes beyond um, rules that we can find that kind of support for. In the time remaining, I want to offer some thoughts about what this shift from international law to international comedy portends for US foreign relations law. First, it does not mean unbridled judicial discretion. There are certainly some doctrines of international comedy like foreign nonconveniennes that give great discretion to U.S. courts, but most of them do not. Think of the active state doctrine, for example, or the rules about enforcing foreign judgments. And ironically, the comedy based rules on extraterritoriality in the Restatement Fourth actually give U.S. courts less discretion than the supposedly customary international law based rules that you found in the Restatement Third. Uh, the second implication is that I think. Thinking about something as international comedy does mean that nations have discretion about how to shape those doctrines. I give examples in the paper where the US presumption against extraterritoriality, rules on foreign non-comedians, the enforcement of judgments, um, the act of state doctrine, differ from some of their foreign counterparts. If we understand these rules to be based on international comedy, It allows for divergence in these rules in ways that basing them on international law would not. Third, I think tying these doctrines of domestic law to international comedy identifies a fundamental underlying connection. Most fundamentally, these doctrines all serve to mediate the relationship between the US legal system and the legal systems of other states. International comedy provides a range of tools for doing this, from the doctrine of forum non conveniens, which focuses on whether the case is in the right forum, to the presumption against extraterritoriality, which focuses on applicable law, to the doctrine of foreign state compulsion, which creates an escape hatch in some situations where a person really is stuck between a rock and a hard place. So we have different problems that arise, and we have different tools based on international comedy to solve those problems. And fourth and finally, I think the toolkit is not closed. Courts can develop new tools and they can can modify existing tools. The Supreme Court could adopt the case-by-case approach that Ralph and Hannah advocate if it wants to. That is a path that is open to them. Congress can intervene if it wants to So can state legislatures on at least some questions. Um, To anticipate G-Day a little bit, the Restatement Fourth, I think, can bring a certain stability to foreign relations law, but this is a law that can change and will continue to change. And so after some period of years, we will need a Restatement Fifth of foreign relations law. And I hope that I will be invited to the
0: so-called colloquium that discusses it. Thank you. Comments or questions lined up. If you have one, uh, please put up your placard and I will uh, go uh, around the table. So we'll start with Paul, who, who will tell us about the uh, Arabic or Ch- and Chinese text <laughs> of, the, of the charter.
3: I, I defer to Bill completely on the Chinese uh, and I prefer to anyone else on the Arabic. Uh, so uh, first a comment about Ed's presentation and then a question for Bakhtiar. I mean, uh, one of the things I think is interesting about the reporter's notes in uh, the fourth restatement is how extensively we quoted foreign legislation, to a lesser extent judicial practice, and and we did get some pushback from our advisors on that because they said, "How are you qualified?" Uh, maybe the Russian and the Chinese we knew, but you know uh, when it came to you know Albanian and Slovenian. Uh, And Romanian law. I mean, did we really know what we were talking about? And you know, it's a fair criticism. Uh, The effort was to at least signal to others what we thought were the indications of practice, and we looked to this extensive state legislation as evidence of practice, which we thought were helpful as to the issues. Um, To Bakhtiar, a, a very, I think, narrow but maybe broad question, which is really about the relationship between the charter and domestic law. I mean, you say in your paper that the mm-hmm. uh, Security Council has exclusive jurisdiction over the determining of aggression. And I, I just, is exclusive the right word as opposed to definitive or authoritative? Because I, I can easily imagine that states, including Russia, can make their own bid on what they think are the contours of a state of aggression and apply that concept to particular facts uh, with the understanding that it is simply a bid subject to the ultimate authority of the Security Council, which is different from exclusive, as I understand it, which means that you can't deal with it at all. You have to kick it up to the Security Council.
4: So I want to offer a, at least a partial defense for the exuberance of the Third Restatement when it comes to articulating rules of customary international law. Uh, and I say partial because I'm 100% on board with this OK. Um, I say a partial defense of the exuberance of the Third Restatement for articulating rules of customary international law because I'm entirely on board, Bill, with the criticism that you made, um, which is there's a very big gap between what the third restatement says customary international law is and the actual methodology of the third restatement when it comes to articulating rules. Um, But I think that there's something useful, um, even in being wrong, right? I think that the third restatement by Articulating rules that didn't prove to align with practice in opinio Juris still provided a useful service by providing, if nothing else, a focal point um, to which other actors, right, judges, political actors, um, could respond. So I, I think you might say the third statement was wrong, um, but it was wrong in a way that was ultimately constructive. Um, I think the second reason why, um, perhaps the fourth restatement is a little bit too gun shy um, when it comes to articulating rules of customary international law, is that the restatement has an important pedagogical role to play Mm -hmm. to practitioners, to judges. It's a resource of first resort to many lawyers and judges who have little exposure to and familiarity with international law. I think by articulating a rule and showing how the methodology ought to work in practice, I think there's an opportunity for the restatement to play a valuable um, pedagogical role. And then the third um, reason, and this one is maybe one to be a little bit more cautious um, about, but in a situation where a rule has not entirely clearly coalesced, where the proof is maybe there but not quite 100%, there is a capacity for the restatement to play a useful role in uh, facilitating the ripening of a rule. And even looking at the third restatement rules that ultimately didn't align with practice and opinion years, the world in which they would have aligned isn't one that looks so different, necessarily, from the one that we live in. And had a couple of Supreme Court justices (laughs) sided with with Justice Scalia and Hartford Fire Insurance. Right, Like the rule could have gone, um, or the the real world could have perhaps reflected the articulated rule far more closely, making it a decent bet looking at it from an ex-ante perspective. Um, So keeping in mind those ways in which it's possible for the restatement to be both wrong and um, constructive. Uh, I'd be curious about your views and the, the views of other reporters about whether you think um, maybe there's a possibility that you were a little bit too gun shy.
0: Bill, did you want a chance to uh, respond? Well, how many
2: of them are we going to? I mean, I think. Do you want to? I'm happy to respond, but maybe people should respond yeah, to Paul w- as well at
0: that point. Maybe why don't we take one more and then go okay. around the table However to respond? You want to do it is fine. How about that?
5: Uh, Just one quick uh, observation and then a question. Um, So I I sort of tend to agree. I I think it's important to distinguish between the operationalizing of rules in the third restatement that were controversial uh, and the underlying principles, which were not. And so to me, it may have been controversial uh, that uh, a reasonable rule was interpreted as how you operationalize customary international law. I don't think it was controversial in a number of areas that customary international law applied and that those were principles of law, not comedy. And so I, so the bigger question I have, um, and, and I can save some of those for tomorrow, but um, I'm interested, it makes a big point that comedy doctrines, international comedy doctrines are not required by international law. Why not? So although they don't specify the specific content of those comedy doctrines, why don't you take the duty to cooperate, the duty to negotiate, a good neighbor list, those principles from international law, and say although they don't create a particular form in which comedy requires, that all those cases under the ICJ's sort of decisions require cooperation and taking into account foreign interests. And therefore at some level, although it doesn't specify the content of the comedy doctrines as they play out domestically, it's required for states to have some form of comedy if not some legal principles that take into account uh, foreign nation interests as part of those princip- general principles of international law. And so I, may, you may not agree with those general principles, uh, but why isn't it that that's emanating from international law as a requirement for why some form of comedy is not required by domestic law but required by international law writ large?
2: I guess I think that, first of all, it's important to distinguish, to define comedy. If comedy means getting along with other people in the world, um, then yes, international law certainly plays a role in facilitating comedy. I'm using it in a more technical term, uh, in a more technical way to include just rules of domestic law that are not required by international law um, that help us get along in the world. So. Um, On the general principles point, um, it's an area of international law that I think is not entirely clear what purpose general principles serve. They're already referred to under the ICJ statute. Um, They certainly form a gap-filling function um, in some instances. Whether there are um, general principles that go beyond that, like a duty to cooperate um, or a duty of good faith which are international obligations on states, I think is much more contested. Um, I certainly don't feel, would not have felt comfortable relying on them in the restatement Fourth to the, um, on those as opposed to um, the rules of customary international law, which are generally recognized based on, um, uh, on state practice and opinion juris um, As to, uh, Christina's point, um, maybe I, I I absolutely agree that it would be extremely useful for people in the United States, including judges, to have um, good illustrations of how you do customary international law. Um, and I I hope that there will be more work on the Restatement Fourth, and I hope that part of that work will be what Ed is suggesting on sources of customary international law at least. I think the question of sources of foreign relations law is much more difficult because it's much more contextual. But we, we have rules for how customary international law um, should be determined. Um, the ILC has done important work recently, completed important work on this as well. Um, and so, and a lot of that could be explained very usefully. I don't think you do any service though if you, say we have these rules and then you push them or don't apply them faithfully. And I think that includes, um, I hear what you're saying about when something is, gets up close to the line. I don't think 403 of the 3rd Restatement re-statement came anywhere close to the line. And so I think that it, in fact, did a disservice. Um, and, and I think one reason one may, well, I'm not gonna blame the third re-statement for this. There are lots of reasons for the backlash against international law in the United States. But um, saying that international law solves, is there, contains everything that everyone might want it to, and solves every possible problem, is not a recipe to get people to take international law seriously, in my view.
0: Well, if 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 I may jump in here, with respect to this, to some extent, but also uh, to respect, with respect to your answer to uh, to Austin, I uh, I completely subscribe to your praise for the Fourth Restatement's effort to keep a fairly clear distinction between doctrines or rules that come and do not come from international law. Uh, but I do have a question about the use of the term com- com- "comedy" to describe or. or uh, establish that distinction and and the example that comes to mind and you cite it in your paper uh, are various cases in which the Supreme Court has kind of casually said things about uh, foreign state immunity uh, to the effect that 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 is a rule of comedy or rule that or they've described it as involving comedy and uh, in my mind it can't be that they mean uh, comedy in the sense that you're describing it, that it is not, not a rule of international. Or at least, if they mean that, then it's clearly wrong. As far as I'm concerned, if there is anything that qualifies as a rule of customary international, that is clearly established as such, it is the rule of foreign state immunity. Um, so then the question is, what do they mean? Either they actually do mean co- comedy in your sense, and they're wrong. Or they mean something slightly different, which is that it is a rule that exists out there that is comedy not in the sense that it is or is not international law, but that describes what it's motivated by, which is uh, a deference, some deference to the sovereign interests of other states and and some need to, uh, you know, restrain, uh, restrict oneself from fully applying one's jurisdiction in certain uh, in, in certain uh, circumstances. Uh, and so that makes me wonder if whether there is some ambiguity built into the term comedy that makes it uh, a sort of, of problematic la- label for uh, what, you're, what you're trying to, to use it as.
2: Well, there certainly are different definitions of international comedy, and the restatement um, does try to adopt a definition that comports with what, what I've said, um, and I agree that um, many rules of uh, foreign sovereign immunity are rules that are required by customary international law. I take a relatively narrow view of what um, those rules required by customary international law um, uh, would require. We can talk about this more tomorrow, potentially. Um, but. Uh, So I guess I see in the area of foreign sovereign immunity, as in the area of prescriptive jurisdiction, I see sort of a core of customary international law rules, and then I see a surrounding doctrine, set of doctrines that are based on comedy, in which nations extend foreign sovereign immunity beyond what is required. The clearest example from U.S. law is um, the extension of foreign sovereign immunity to agencies and instrumentalities of foreign states. Um, not required by customary international law, nobody else does it, to state-owned enterprises, for example. So um, the United
0: States has chosen to do it, that's comedy. Thank you. Uh, were there some, yeah, some more answers to?
1: Yeah, if you don't mind. Um, I, I, I will not weigh in on the, on the comedy issue. I do think that it is um, a concept that's used diversely and um, has to be examined in each particular context as to whether it's referring to an internationally binding obligation or even a domestically binding obligation. And I think that's the approach generally the restatement takes is not some kind of trans-substantive sense of what comedy necessarily is. Um, To Christina's point, I mean, I think that's entirely true as an observation um, that um, there's value in being wrong, or there's value in demonstrating method in pursuit of establishing a principle of of customary international law, even if one isn't fully fledged. Um, but I th- try to think of that more um, as, uh, as a byproduct or as uh, waste of the process, not uh, as uh, part of the production function. I think there's serious dangers um, to, uh, for the reporters, where we looked at one another and said, "Ah, well, you know, it's wrong, but you know, it's interesting, <laughs> or at least it will generate an interesting response. Uh, I don't think the uh, Institute would have let us get away with that, and I think there's a huge downside in that one of the things that I've seen in the 30 years of reaction to the uh, Restatement 3rd is um, tarring uh, the restatement as a whole uh, and the method and the reporters by virtue of perceived errors in one um, section, say, that is thought to represent a methodological problem that contaminates the entire project. And I think that's something that one has to be very um, careful about. Um, Paul, um, I agree with you entirely, um, and I don't mean to be suggesting that the Restatement Fourth um, didn't do a, a wise job of husbanding uh, evidence concerning state practice uh, in um, the reporter's notes. Um, we got pushback on that, as you say. We got pushback um, also when um, in the early drafts uh, there was more such material um, simply cited for more comparative purposes. And it's that latter part that I think is what um, uh, troubles me more, not comparative purposes so much, is where we're not sure really or we haven't stated clearly um, what the end, what the evidence is supposed to establish in the end. Um, And I think we know in the restatement reporter's notes you mentioned what the end product is supposed to be. It's supposed to be establishing what is customary international law. Or in US judicial practice, what is comedy that is a rule that has to be applied as a legal obligation, if not an international one. Um, But where we're dealing with something that is, um, as Bill said, necessarily contextual, but um, also where we're not really sure ultimately what the payoff is in formal legal terms. Um, I think it requires some greater self-scrutiny. We can speculate about what the payoff is in non-formal uh, legal terms. One of the uh, benefits mm-hmm. of citing, for example, U.S. executive practice on an area is um, reducing the possibility of criticism of the, uh, of the efforts as being out of step with some concept of, of foreign relations mm-hmm. law. So there's a lot of potential payoffs. It's just I think we have to have our own ter- internal um, standard that we're aspiring to.
6: Paul, I think that uh, uh, the uh, prerogative to uh, uh, determine the, uh, the act of aggression should stay with the Security Council as its uh, exclusive uh, prerogative. That's, that's my reading of the charter. If there is a massive armed attack, um, then it triggers off uh, self-defense, whether individual or collective. Uh, that, that's, that's the textbook. Um, I, um, I, I think that the term aggression has been used uh, both internationally and nationally rather indiscriminately and it became very very commonplace. Uh, it should be used more sparingly. I'm reminded of a diplomatic anecdote which was told by, to me by one of the participants when two ambassadors, a Soviet, then, then Soviet and, uh, and U.S., were standing in front of the door of the Security Council Um, which was about to vote on what eventually became uh, uh, Resolution 678, authorizing the use of all necessary means against Iraq. And uh, the two ambassadors were discussing whether the the, the, the term aggression should be used by the Security Council. One said, let's do it. Both were burdened by a degree of legal knowledge. Uh, and the other say no. The other said no. It, 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 it's all clear. Let, let's let's go and vote. They voted, that there was no term aggression in 1991 in six, seven, eight. How history would have changed had uh, the Security Council identified the aggression at that moment and said that Iraq is responsible for that aggression because the determination of the act of aggression. Uh, entails not only general measures against uh, an aggressive state, but also personal measures.
0: John Harrison.
7: Yes, okay, yes. I want to ask a question specifically of Ed Swain and whether the restaters grappled at all with a problem about the interaction between U.S. domestic law and international law with respect to actions of the executive insofar as they contribute to state practice because state practice is the conduct of states. Routinely, the U.S. executive acts on behalf of the United States. Congress also legislates. The courts do make decisions. And there are a lot of debates about the extent of executive authority, the extent of executive discretion with respect to foreign relations, and whether, whether you saw it as a problem that there may be actions by the United States that for international law purposes would constitute state practice that were taken by the executive and are of doubtful legality as a matter of US domestic law. I'll, I'll give one example. I think for international law purposes, the way the international action in Korea was organized without the actual creation, without the use of UN forces uh, pursuant to an Article 43 agreement, but in a somewhat novel uh, mechanism. um, That's an important piece of state practice, I think, in glossing the charter. But for US domestic law purposes, there's a longstanding debate going all the way back to Korea whether it was in fact lawful Un- under U.S. law, for the president to participate in that kind of in that kind of action, I'm sure there are, there are other examples. That one just came to mind. So my question is whether whether the restaters thought they had to think something about that, given the way that the the two bodies of law interact with one another.
0: Uh, Mila,
8: proceeding. Okay. Uh, I don't think I. I'm pretty bad. Well right. I don't think I. Do I need this? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay sorry. Um, okay. So. I had a question for Bakshar. So I, I wondered, uh, so some have speculated that the uh, parliaments that are more involved in declaring war or going to war, that, that actually lets, leads to less war, right? And, and these countries less likely to fight each other. So there's a paper by Tom Ginsburg where he tries to show this empirically, but this is an older idea in international relations. It's sort of a version of Kant's perpetual peace thesis, if you want, so I was curious, does Russia fit this hypothesis, right? So, if there were actually more powers for for the legislature and the balance wasn't as much tilted towards the executive, do you think things would have actually played out different, in, differently in some of the incidences, uh, instances of aggressions? And, and um, I guess underlying my question is uh, just. The, a sort of a curiosity that I have or maybe something that I'm trying to understand better is how law, to what extent does law actually matter in Russia is a question I find very interesting because on the one hand it clearly matters a lot and then on the other hand it seems to be fairly easily, easy to maneuver around it as well for the executive, right? So so, and I had a related question there so the rule, it's just a clarification question, the rule that um, uh, the Council of Federation has to be involved in authorizing troops abroad. Was that applied in Crimea or not? Was that? Applied in the Crimea case or not? Uh, because it's an annexation, so probably it's not abroad, is my guess, but I was just curious. And let's
0: take one more. Uh, Ralph
8: Michaels.
9: Yeah, Thanks, I have um, two small questions for Bill and then a reaction to the, uh, Christina's discussion. The two small questions are first, on the role of um, comity, especially under your definition of comity, it seems to be a general policy that inspires specific types of uh, legal rules. And so the question is, beyond the actual restatement of these rules, what's the independent role of comity in that? If you define comity as that which states on their own decide to do within uh, the scope of what international law allows, then comity doesn't under Occam's razor that doesn't seem to play an independent role anymore. You just want to restate the foreign uh, relations law. Relatedly to that, if you define it as uh, deference to other states, but then oppose case-by-case analysis, as it's called, um, case-by-case analysis seems to be a misnomer for something that is a bilateral approach in the sense to say we apply, uh, we make the deference decision on the basis of what we see on the other side. And that is case by case because sometimes there's a claim to adjudicate and sometimes not, et cetera. Um, an approach that opposes that and is unilateral as is the presumption against extraterritoriality um, doesn't seem to be deference anymore. It seems to look unilaterally to to restrict the scope of US law without actually def- deferring, although somewhere deep in the background may be the policy interest to say if we restrict ourselves far enough, we won't come into any conflict. But then the, the really interesting discussion that, that Christina began, and uh, the moment she said maybe it was wrong, I realized this is the opening for how you're going to respond, and Bill and Ed responded in exactly that way, which is this is not our task, and we have to state how Mm -hmm. it's correct. First, I'm not sure that the third statement was actually uh, wrong in that regard. The one that I'm looking at at 403, I think the question is still open. Hannah and I hope to look at that. The fact that they cite no more than English-British responses to um, extraterritoriality, maybe insufficient evidence, but that's different from saying this is wrong. Second, and maybe more importantly, the third restatement becomes for some time the restatement of international law for the world. Right? So the world refers to the third restatement as the anchoring point for what international law um, uh, actually is, and then with the discussion of whether individual provisions are or are not. And with many of them, the way of showing that it's not wrong is to say other countries endorsed it, right? Said ex post, this is actually fine. I would think that the towering that we had in the United States was based on ideological and not methodological reasons. I think it's in opposition to the, to the content of the restatement and not, and not to the methodology. But if you switch the title of the... Or go the other direction in the title of this uh, panel from the Restatement of International Law, not to look what's the role of international law in the restatement, but what's the role of the restatement for international law. The big responsibility of the, uh, of the restatement draft is whether you want it or not, is going to be that this is going to be taken to some extent as a restatement of at least a part of, um, of international law. And it will model an approach to international law for other countries just as the third restatement did. And so you may well say that does not uh, mean we should think normatively, we just try to describe the law as it is domestically. Um, but it's, 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 it's one of the huge impacts that the restatement is likely to have and uh, one that I think deserves some of the um, concern and attention that, that, that Christina points to. To put that out. Thank you.
0: Um, who would like to? Well, we should we should answer some uh, some of these uh, now and then go on to the last few mm-hmm. questions. Uh, who would like to go first?
1: Um, so I think I'll. Um, I think I'll leave um, Austin's um, remarks. Um, but the as to John's question. Um, whether they're executive branch actions that um, may be inconsistent with U.S. law that might contribute to the formation of international law that is inconsistent with or in tension with U.S. domestic principles. Um, I can say the reporters didn't deal with that question generally because we haven't uh, and didn't undertake um, anything that was about um, customary international law and its effects Um, domestically. Um, My personal assumption would be um, that the president is um, uh, bound uh, by um, U.S. domestic laws or other actors including the Constitution um, but that we know um, that the U.S. can be bound by international law Um, even if a U.S. actor contributing to the formation of international law has violated U.S. domestic law. We know that from um, the laws of treaties and other international agreements, that it's simply not the case that simply an error in um, U.S. law will somehow um, deprive an international agreement of its effects on the United States. And that's actually been something that we do explore in the restatement and that the um, um, Senate and Congress appear to understand as well. I think that would also be true um, for um, customer international law, but that's not a point that we've I- examined. Um, Ralph, I, just very briefly, because you're, you're mainly about the substance, I think, of um, 403 and its successors. Um, you know, I think it's fair to view the, the restatement in some sense as a proposer of international law, or as a forum for um, generating international law. And I think that's one of the ways that its success might fairly uh, be evaluated. Um, And we know, sure, that the restatement isn't a court. It's not trying to resolve questions and and decrees in a way that is formally legally bound, and and in principle can view itself as an actor. But I I guess I remain committed to the more boring proposition that that is a dangerous um, mantle to assume. It may be uh, a mantle that is thrust upon the project, um, but I don't think it's one that can productively um, be employed by it when its interlocutors include a lot of um, uh, people within um, the institute and otherwise, such as courts, who are evaluating it by its uh, correspondence with a more near-term reality.
9: Okay,
2: Okay, so um, to Ralph's points, I agree with Ed that I think that um, for the restatement for the American Law Institute to um, be pushing particular views of customary international law that it finds normatively attractive but aren't supported by state practice is I think dangerous. And I actually think it undercuts the role of international law, not just in the United States but abroad, because it... um, uh, it makes it seem as though it's just something that international law experts dream up. Or in this case, even more controversially, U.S. international law experts dream up. And I I just, I have a hard time seeing how that contributes um, generally to the international law project. I think we are on much safer grounds when we are more um, cautious in that respect. Um, I do think that, I, I take your point about What work does comedy do if it's just a category that we use to lump all of these domestic doctrines together? But I do think that it's useful to have a name to put on that category of things, and not all jurisdictions, only common law jurisdictions really call it comedy, civil law jurisdictions generally don't, and yet they have these doctrines too. Um, I do think that there is a value in having, in finding a commonality among these things. Um, the analogy that occurs to me is, is mutual trust under the Brussels regulation, right? You may think that's useless too, but, um, but it's a linking idea, um, and it reflects something. In the case of mutual trust, it's, you know, we've entered into this arrangement with these other um, jurisdictions, so we really need to take them seriously and not be second-guessing them all the time. In the case of comedy, it's that we live in a world where lots of stuff, including disputes cross borders, um, and we need to accommodate that fact, and we need to accommodate other legal systems by showing some deference. And on the deference point, I don't agree that if you don't take into consideration the actual interests of a foreign government in the particular case, that it's not deference. I think one can have deference that is unilateral and deference that is multilateral. there are other comedy doctrines that act in a unilateral form too. Forum non conveniens, for example, does not depend upon the existence of any actual foreign dispute to which it is deferring. Um, yeah, but that forum may or may not have an interest in hearing the case. The forum... It is case by case, but it doesn't depend, I think, on the interests of foreign governments in the way that, well, I don't know, I mean, maybe you and I need to talk about this further in terms of, uh, my basic point is that I don't think that deference has to operate in this sort of way of saying, um, in the particular case before the court, what are the particular interests of the foreign legal system or the foreign um, government actor? Um, I think it could operate that way, and some comedy doctrines do operate that way, but they don't all have to operate that way. So I, I guess I rejected the idea that um, the presumption against extraterritoriality doesn't involve, for example, it's unilateral, but I reject the proposition that it doesn't involve deference to foreign states. You, you may not reflect enough deference or the optimal level of deference, but that's a different question, I think. Back there.
6: Yep, uh, uh, Mila, I, um I would say that the council is involved and it's involved quite actively, at least if you look at uh, 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 the minutes of uh, uh, sessions when uh, the uh, authorization to deploy is debated. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite extensive. And incidentally, the rules of the Council provide for in-camera discussions on the matters of uh, foreign deployments, although most of them have been done uh, publicly. The only two instances when those dis- uh, debates were held in Canberra that I can think of was, one, deployment to Kosovo, to the uh, international uh, uh, UN slash NATO, mostly NATO operation in Kosovo, and uh, uh, the reason uh, the debate was held in in, in Canberra, in my opinion, was because one of uh, a group of members of the council who were delegated by the predominantly Muslim members of the Russian Federation, they uh, didn't want Muslim, soldiers of Muslim faith to be parts of those units that would be sent to, uh, deployed to, uh, to Kosovo operation. Although later they changed their position and, but that, that's another story. The other instance when debate, discussions were in camera um, was um, uh, with respect of Syrian deployment, the uni- initial deployment to Syria. And uh, as I already said, the uh, resolution was so terse that you cannot discern from the text of the resolution that it was about Syria. Only immediate subsequent the events that immediately followed uh, uh, made it obvious that the authorization was for uh, deployment to uh, Syria. Now. Um, I should also add that quite often the Council of Federation is, in its authorization and then later the President in uh, uh, his own decree would make references to uh, international law. The counterterrorism authorization uh, that was the authorization to use armed forces and, uh, uh, and special units, special forces, um, following the attack on Russian diplomatic personnel in Baghdad, made a reference to uh, Article 51 of the UN Charter—that's self, self, uh, self-defense. Um, I should also say that Russia seems to be developing a sort of its own authorization to use the military force doctrine. That is, we have at least two open-ended uh, authorizations. One is more or less specific with respect to uh, counterterrorism that's following that Baghdad attack. The other is, uh, which was adopted uh, um, after uh, the war with Georgia, and with the inability of the two branches of power to interact and give constitutional authority to, uh, to deployment. Then there is another open ended AUM. MF, uh, uh, Russian-style uh, resolution, which authorizes uh, the president to, uh, uh, to deploy forces in certain circumstances. Crimea, the answer is yes. The Council of Federation was involved, although the resolution which was passed on the president's request, on the president's application, was about the deployment of armed forces to the Ukrainian territory. And it was repealed a few days afterwards. Does that answer your question?
0: Thank you. So uh, we are uh, coming towards the end of our time. We only have a few minutes left, but uh, Kurt and George uh, have had their placards up for a while, so uh, I want to give them a chance to ask their questions.
10: Mine's more of a comment that might also apply to the next panel, so I can be very quick. Um, and is, although it's prompted by p- your paper, Ed. Um, so, and I'm surprised we haven't yet kind of s- said this yet, which there's something quite odd about doing a restatement, it seems to me, on foreign relations law that we haven't fully, obviously it didn't deter me from doing uh, six years of work on it, but uh, if you think about the common law topics where you have a bunch of uh, state judges across jurisdictions deciding similar cases over a period of time, what you could, and by the way, doing kind of a common law policy making, pluralist kind of decision making that's uh, allowed to be open-ended. Um, you can see the kind of Burkean uh, wisdom that you might say if you compared a bunch and you can pick out the ones that seem to be working well, and then there'd be a lot of uh, guidance potentially by restating the ones that seem to be uh, majoritarian or, or working. And that is nothing like the restatement, form not this one, but not the last one either. A normatively loaded area of public law, a fair amount of which is constitutional law, that has one decision maker at the top, the US Supreme Court, when you have decisions as opposed to a disaggregated, lots of uh, similar uh, jurisdictions that you're comparing. And um, getting to your paper, for example, not clear what the interpretive perspective is. So now, now I'm not sure we can say it, so I don't know if I have an answer to it. But is it the judge, the reasonable state common law judge? No, it is probably not. Is it the reasonable federal judge? I'm not sure if that's all that it is. So you raise a question about the executive branch. A a lot of fair and relations law is not actually fairly judicialized, in which case, if there's law, if there is law, uh, what's the interpretive perspective? It might, to some extent, have to be some of the executive's views or actions. Um, Why should it be the mythical judge who will never decide the treaty termination case? Just a question mark about where I'm supposed to be imagining myself to be the decision maker. And the more it's not a court, the more it opens up the things that you ask about. And then finally, Another thing we don't, if we're getting into public law and constitutional law, what's the methodology? Uh, Big fights among the people who write in this area, even in this room, originalists and textualists versus pluralists and common law constitutionalists, we never say. Uh, What do we do? We basically are pluralist, I think, for the most part. And uh, that's defensible on the ground that that's a lot of modern stuff is probably pretty pluralist, as opposed to the academic writings on the topic. but interestingly not a defended choice either. And I think it's all be, in part because it's very different from the common law project. You were next. Yeah.
11: So I just have a brief uh, question for Ed. I, I, I listened to you carefully and you said we should pay attention to what the sources of international law are or the sources for the restatement. But you didn't say we should actually catalog them, which, um, you just said, be careful. and I guess I sympathize with uh, your caution in this respect. It's, it's, it, it makes a lot of sense to raise this question, to get into it. I have no idea how you get out of it. Um, and it seems to me that you know, when you analyze particular legal problems, you know, the working view of almost all lawyers is some kind of legal positivism. Show me what the sources of law are, and I can give you an answer to this particular transaction, this particular dispute. But in a task like the restatement, you're taking a much broader view, and the admissible sources might not be an input; they might be an output of the whole process of restatement.
0: Reactions? Well,
1: I don't want to speak. Is this the last question? I don't want to say anything at the expense of other questions.
0: No, I think this is the last, the last round of questions that we're going to take. So, if you have final, final reflections, that is also welcome there
1: I would just say with respect to the last two comments um, I agree with both of them I think one of the questions we face is um, as Kurt said we we don't just have the audience being federal courts though we c- can scarcely afford to lose our credibility with them um, so I think that they are a constraining force in that sense um, we are we are seeking to have a degree of credibility and resonance within with the executive branch and with the U.S. as a whole as well, but they, to a substantial extent, take their own guidance, and uh, there is not the rich tradition of the restatement guiding um, more naive end users that you might find in some of the other areas of the restatements. It's more a case in which um, the, the end users are extremely sophisticated and have Um, their own agendas and um, can harbor deep uh, and never surrendered disagreements with what the restatement uh, is inclined to say. And that is a a tempering force. I think the best we can ultimately do is make sure that we are genuinely pluralistic in terms of the inputs that we receive and the kind of data that we survey um, so that we can convince more constituencies that their views uh, haven't been ignored and that this is truly Um, even if it is never rigidly defined, that this is truly, um, you know, a a careful effort that takes into account the different constituencies.
2: I would actually just like to address that
1: topic very briefly,
2: which is, um, uh, I think it would be possible and useful to describe sources of foreign relations law, maybe in the comments and reporters' notes, to a section that defines foreign relations law, but I don't think it would be possible to come up with rules in the same way that one has rules and can explain them for customary international law, because the sources are too varied, and, and um, what ends up being the definitive source or the ones that carry the most weight varies very much depending on what kind of rules we're talking about and in what context. Um,
6: There were no specific questions for me in the final round, but I uh, would say that, uh, uh, again, going back to uh, those interactions between uh, various branches of of government with respect of foreign deployments, we uh, can witness uh, diverging trends, and uh, I I, I gave a brief example of Israel or Russia. Um, even in germany when the constitutional court uh, rules in 90 uh, 1994 decision uh, uh, judgment uh, on the uh, specific role of uh, of uh, Bundestag and foreign deployments of Bundeswehr, including the peacekeeping operations, then there are caveats in uh, later decisions uh, about uh, the practicability of involvement of uh, Bundestag in certain contingencies where the exigencies of situation do not allow for, uh, for this role. So uh, I, 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 I don't think that there is a uniform, and very clear picture here.
0: Thank you. Uh, so-
3: You know, at our very first meeting. Our very first meeting with our advisors, we had a draft sources of foreign relations law provision. And the consensus in the room was come back with this after you've done foreign relations law. So it is exactly a case where first you say what the law is and then you say what the sources are.
0: Well, uh, we are out of time, but we are going into a a short coffee break that you can use to uh, pursue the conversation, uh, to continue the conversation. In the meantime, please join me in thanking our panelists.